When looking at the panoply of challenges and fissures in American life, Ibu Patel says it'd be a good start to become a little more modest and a little more focused. His big goal really isn't to change the world. Instead, he says, the deep clues in life are almost always fundamentally religious. As the ancient Buddhist proverb goes, our work is to try to move the world a quarter of an inch. For all his modesty, Ibu isn't Buddhist. He's an Ismaili Muslim. At age 46, he's seen religion function first as a constraining obligation, and then in college as fire, and then in his 20s joining the workforce as institutional power in the tradition of Dorothy Day. Ibu believes religion is one of the most powerful forces in the world, even if many policymakers, journalists, and others ignore or overlook it. Part of that links to being Ismaili. Ibu's religious community consists of just 15 million of the world's nearly 1.9 billion Muslims. For over 1,400 years, Ismailis in the Shia tradition have sought the betterment of society, in their own words, through an informed embrace of pluralism, forging bridges of peace and understanding, and sharing time, talents, and material resources to improve the lives of their community and those among whom they live. Ismaili life, we might say, reflects living as a creative minority, similar in American life to the lives of Orthodox Jews, Mormons, or Anabaptists. It's a small tribe, always mindful of the larger other. So when Ibu observes hundreds of four-year U.S. colleges founded with a religious motivation, but today serving all, he's heartened by an unbounded sense of American possibility. When he sees Presbyterian hospitals serving Muslims or Catholics, He's heartened, and he thinks there's much more of that in American life than we typically notice. Joining Ibu on the podcast today is Wajahat Ali, New York Times contributing journalist and poet playwright who, for vocational reasons, spends a lot of time with elite influencers on Twitter and keeping up with cable news. Waj is a brilliant Pakistani-American Muslim, and yet the two approach from different places the dialogue you're about to hear. As the old phrase goes, where you stand depends on where you sit. Nineteen years ago in Chicago, Ibu Patel founded Interfaith Youth Corps to equip the next generation of citizens and professionals with the knowledge and skills needed for leadership in a religiously diverse world. Today, 50 IFYC employees and a bevy of volunteers partner with higher education institutions and corporations to make interfaith cooperation a growing norm in 21st century America. Patel cites Catholic worker movement co-founder Dorothy Day whose lifelong work, including her religious institutional commitment, serves as an inspiration for building a world that meets our deepest yearning. Here's a direct excerpt from Dorothy Day that Ibu cites as inspiration for IFYC's work. Whenever I groan within myself and think how hard it is to keep writing about love in these times of tension and strife, which may at any moment become for all of us a time of terror, I think to myself, what else is the world interested in? What else do we all want, each one of us, except to love and be loved in our families, in our work, in all our relationships? God is love. Love casts out fear. Even the most ardent revolutionist seeking to change the world, to overturn the tables of the money changers, is trying to make a world where it is easier for people to love, to stand in that relationship to each other, there can never be enough of it. Today's conversation is a rich one because Waj and Ibu bring differing viewpoints 
one from the leading edge of political journalism, the other from the heartland. For any politico reading the news these days, it's easy to overlook the hopeful observations that Ibu discerns. And yet, more than most, we elites will do well to really take in what we're about to hear. Enjoy the conversation. Uh, so we're with Ibu Patel here, who founded Interfaith Youth Corps on the idea that religion should be a bridge of cooperation rather than a barrier of division. That's a beautiful sentiment. And I, for one, agree. I, I know Josh does as well. However, the reality is, Ibu, and, and before we get to the good syrupy sweet stuff, let's just talk about the, the bitter reality of America right now, is that America right now is, is a country torn. Uh, with disinformation, where a large part of this country thinks that Trump won the election, uh, where there is uh, tribalism, and where religion is often used as a shield and a sword to protect your own community and harm others. So the question that I have for you, realistically, surveying the landscape, 2021, is interfaith even possible anymore in our country which is bereft with tribalism, extremism, hate, and disinformation. Waj, it is good to hear your voice. It is good to see your face, albeit on a screen. And I am going to play the glass half full to your of course you uh, glass has been shattered and the shards of glass have embedded themselves in our jugular veins. Whoa, easy, uh, easy. I was going to say juggler. I mean, that's like death. I'm, I just say like maybe our femur. So we bleed out like slowly. <laughs> that's even better. Thank you. Listen, I think America works more than it doesn't work. And doctors who are walking into two-person heart surgeries, of course, surrounded by nurses and physician's assistants and custodians, et cetera, et cetera, they're not saying, hey, you voted for somebody differently than I, than I did. I'm not going to do this heart surgery with you, right? People who run athletic leagues, Jews and Muslims who might view the Middle East very differently are not typically saying, I won't coach Little League Baseball with you. So- I always want to start with what's working mm -hmm. because I actually think the best model of social change is not finding the worst things out there and screaming at them. I think the best model of social change is finding the bright spots, the things that are working and asking the question, how can more of us do that, right? And the genius of America is in our civil society in which people from various identities and with divergent ideologies still cooperate in really positive ways. I think it it works more often than it doesn't. I wish that we paid more attention to to where it worked, asked how and why it worked and 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 found ways to kind of spread that ethic elsewhere. Okay, so since you've cast me now as the surly, ornery uncle who's cantankerous <laughs> and sees the glass uh, half full. Uh, half, empty, I'll, half empty. Yeah, yeah. Shattered, uh, actually. Shattered, yeah. yeah. And, and we we have to say that we are the two brown unicorn uh, uncles who still have hair in our 40s for now. So we're very <laughs> rare. For now. Uh, this is like... <laughs> I got to tell you what. I just turned 46, and my 11-year-old woke up in a bad mood for whatever reason on the day of my birthday, forgot it was my birthday. I had to remind him, and he said, ask God for a less receding hairline. So, oh, oh, cold. Oh, did you just the shattering? 
That's the <laughs> that just shows you that how assimilated we are. Can oh. you imagine any child in India or Pakistan saying that to their parents? No, they would be killed immediately. It would be just like it would be over. It would be just like the, the, their life would end. But that is, dude, that is a brutal uppercut and like low blow at the same time. How'd you? I'm a. We have to discuss how you actually recovered from that. But that actually is a beautiful sentiment of the harsh reality. Maybe your son is actually more like me, where he just calls out the blunt truths, even though they might be bitter. I appreciate your sentiment. So I want to go off of that because if we even look at where this is conversation, right? For those of you who are listening, I'm a practicing Muslim, born and raised in America. Ibu is a Muslim man. Josh is a white evangelical Christian, correct, Josh? You bet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All who believe in our faith wear it proudly, I guess, on your sleeves when they ask us about it. We're not ashamed of it. But at the same time, here we're having a very civil conversation and Josh spent time in Europe talking to Muslims and Christians, you spend your time, Ibu, oftentimes outside of the mosque, talking to people who worship the same God, sometimes even though they don't think they do, but, you know, worship differently. And here we are modeling this type of behavior. But the reality also is, is that you say this is a beautiful model that should be replicated. And oftentimes, if we were to be honest, in these interfaith spaces, the critique that even we have is we're just preaching to the choir, man. Here's some granola eating, like, you know, Kumbaya, Muslims, Jews, and Christians. And if you look at the landscape in America right now, freaking people are assaulting teachers now. They're going after doctors. Like people are hating each other openly. So maybe, yeah, I agree with you, Ibu, but this is, you know, a Kumbaya cult that you're part of. It's not part of the mainstream. In the vast majority of hospitals, schools, parent teacher associations, little leagues, peewee football leagues, fire departments, etc. People from diverse religious identities and divergent ideologies are fighting fires together, are putting on school plays together, are teaching classes together, are part of bowling leagues together, are fighting fires together, are are are, are uh, providing people with uh, uh, safe places to sleep and warm meals mm. after tornadoes together. The point that I'm making is is we can tell a story that lifts up the worst elements, right? We can always find the one plane crash that happens somewhere in the world every month and focus on that. Or we can point to the millions and millions and millions of occurrences where people, I'll say it again, with diverse identities and divergent ideologies are cooperating. So let me let me tell you one of these stories. So uh, what do you know? Yasser Qadi, right? Yeah. Probably the most, at least for a time, the most well-known, what you might call a Salafi Muslim in the United States. It's, it's kind of a Puritan form of Islam. And Yasser probably disagrees with me on virtually everything when it comes to Muslim theology, especially me being an Ismaili. He's always been polite and friendly to me, which I appreciate. Mm. But for a time, he was a faculty member at a Presbyterian college run by a Jewish president named Marjorie Haas, Rhodes Mm. College. I just had lunch with Marjorie. Uh, She's now the president of the Council of of Independent Colleges. And I said, hey, what was your relationship like with Yasser Qadi? And she's like, it was a great relationship. He's a terrific faculty member when he was at Rhodes, and and every every once in a while, I'd I'd I'd, uh, I'd field a phone call with some somebody who had read something crazy about Professor Kavi and complain about him, and I would defend him fulsomely and talk about our friendship together. That's American pluralism, okay? Presbyterian a college founded by Presbyterians, where a very theologically conservative Muslim 
is a faculty member, the president is Jewish, and there are positive cooperative relationships. And I actually think that that is way more the norm. And I would much prefer us tell a positive story and ask the question, how do we spread this, rather than find the terrible things happening and shout into the abyss, right? You can call this the build a Tesla model, right? Like gas power, cars that guzzle gas are a bad thing. We can, we should protest those automakers, but really I'd prefer to build a Tesla, build something better. Build with, something- with that, without Elon Musk's ego. But yes, I understand what you're saying. I, I want to bring in Josh also in this and I ask both of you guys this question because if we if we take that bridging model, right? I echo that growing up. I went to an all-boys Jesuit Catholic high school where I uh, was the the pro- probably the only open practicing Muslim even though there were others afterwards. I had a wonderful education. We studied the Bible. Uh, Men for Others was the creed. We had to do 100 hours of community service to graduate. Went to Mass for the first time. I had no idea what a Eucharist was. <laughs> you know, I'm like, what is this white thing that they're putting? I'm like, all right, I'll try it out. Great values, right? And, and shared values, uh, diverse communities coming together in service of others. It's one of those things where I think it was a beautiful example of how, of what so, of how something can flourish in America, right? And I think you would agree with me, and I think both of you would agree with me, that the only way really to make this experiment called America work is to stretch and expand and include all of our communities. It's the only way. Uh, uh, Otherwise, constriction, as we're seeing right now, it's just not going to work. It's not going to happen. One of these ways that you're saying is spread the good stories, I agree with you, despite my initial cantankerous, cynical question, is that sometimes that story is not being told or that story is not being heard by the community that we need to reach. And I'll give you a personal example. And this is where I want Josh to come in also is I've heard from many Muslims and not just Muslims. I've heard from black and even Latino Christians, uh, Jews, that this one community that we really need to crack in America that is not listening to us is the white evangelical Christian community. Like even more so than Jewish, believe it or not, people think all oh, Muslims and Jews are at loggerheads and you, you know, Ibu, you can push back against that your entire career. But the one community really where people are saying, man, if I could really get an intro into that community, because that community right now, the way they look about look at us as Muslims, especially, there seems to be very few openings. So for both of you, Josh and Ibu, when it comes to the white evangelical Christian community, and I don't need to sit here and talk to you guys about the politics behind the community. You guys know, we've seen the data. How do we promote this message to that community where some of those leaders seem to be very resistant to this idea of a multicultural America that Ibu has kind of expressed? Or rather, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to demonize white evangelical Christians here for a second, Josh, but I'm saying from a political landscape, and I can only say from my communities, that seems to be like a nut we can't crack. Well, my view on that is that the work uh, Ibu is doing and his colleagues at uh, Interfaith Youth Corps is so compelling because it's helping religious communities to have a language for the reality of pluralism, for the, for the reality of religious diversity in the world, uh, for the fact of changing demographics in the country. And even though those changing demographics can make people psychologically fearful and uncomfortable and turn inward they can, if we have a better language of pluralism, also help people to come across lines and do things that are constructive uh, against the reality of our increasing tribalism and polarization, right? Mm. So to me, the real problem is that, at least in my tribe, I'm Anglican, but white evangelical, in my tribe, 
if say there are maybe 80, 85 million evangelicals in the country, that's what Wheaton College says, you can look up the different studies. Increasingly, politics is the foundation and religion is the icing on the cake mm. rather than the opposite. And that's true for a whole host of reasons. I'd invite you to repeat beat Wayner and David Brooks and Mike Gerson and a whole lot of other people on this question. But that is a problem when your identity is really politics and people are choosing to become quote unquote white evangelical or evangelical because of the common politics, even if they share none of the none of the faith, uh, you know, mm. in, in inspirations and, and, and realities. So, you know, to me, where you stand depends on where you sit. And, you know, Ibu mentioned earlier that sometimes you can have a, a, a Jew and a Muslim coaching a little league together. And that's wonderful and true. Although it is increasingly the case, you know, that, that you know, while, while 50 years ago, you wouldn't let your kid marry someone of the opposite race. Today, you wouldn't let your kid marry somebody of the opposite political party. And that dynamic around sort of political polarization, politicization of so much, I think is behind the question you raised. Yeah, I have I have two answers to this question, and at some point in this, I want to I want to kind of get to the IFYC model of pluralism, so to yeah. speak. Uh, you know, we've we're distilled it down into we hope like easily memorable, almost bumper sticker type things. But I have two answers to your question. Which one is there's very clearly a set of white evangelicals, um, uh, Michael Gerson. Pete Weiner, two people Josh mentioned, obviously David French, Russell Moore, Beth Moore. There's a set of white evangelical elites, if you will, who are very clearly carving out a a different kind of identity that ought to be paid attention to, right? But maybe more importantly, I actually spend quite a bit of time in actual white evangelical communities because I go to a lot of college campuses, mm. Wheaton, Calvin, Bethel. Messiah, and what people actually do civically is different what they say politically. I am not saying what they say politically doesn't matter. I think it does matter. But I think the manner in which people interact in civic spaces also really matters. And this was actually the great Obama idea, right? He was like, we are much kinder to each other. We are much more cooperative with each other in real life than we are on cable news. And back then, of course, social media wasn't wasn't as much of a thing. Was social media has just, you know, quintupled the ugly, the the kind of ugly avatar fight. Mm -hmm. Right? I am not interested in the worst version of people. I'm interested in the best version of people. And frankly, I think that that Muslims ought to be even more sensitive to this because we have so often been caricatured that you know you read a, you read pieces on the caricature of who of, of Muslims or you see videos you think to yourself I don't actually know people who act like that or at least not that many people if we have suffered caricature in the form of narrative and media why wouldn't we be sensitive to other communities being caricatured also Right, there's a beautiful line by by Dorothy Day, and you know Josh has provided this quote by Dorothy Day. I'll I'll, I'll read. I'll state one of her other lines. How do we create spaces where it is easier for other people to be good? And I actually think it is part of the Muslim ethic coming from the Quran that that it is our job to be the kind of people where other people can be their best self. Mm. 
the a rejoinder to that might be, you know, do you do you you know, oppressed people should not have to take on that responsibility. I don't consider myself oppressed, right? I consider myself the luckiest person on planet Earth, and I think of that not just because I'm free in America and not just because I'm materially comfortable, but because I'm Muslim. And I believe we have the final revelation, and I believe we have God's last prophet, and I believe we have a message that says we are to be God's servant and representative on a diverse creation, and we have responsibilities and gifts that are given to us by God. And I think one of those responsibilities and gifts is to be the kind of individuals that other people are better when they are around. That's the prophetic model, right, that we hope to embody, where if you look at the prophets that we all share, for those of you who don't know, Muslims share (laughs) pretty much all the same prophets in the Bible. We just believe that Prophet Muhammad is the final prophet. But if you look at the prophetic model, the prophets suffered, and the prophets were rejected, and the prophets were humiliated, and the prophets were mocked, and yet they treated people with kindness and love and mercy, right? Oftentimes, though, what I've seen and heard from our own communities, and it's very similar to what Josh was describing in in the evangelical community is politics supersedes spirituality and religion. For prophets get kicked to the to the not to the driver's seat, they get kicked to the back seat, and uh, politics and identity becomes the driver, the vehicle of fuel. Unfortunately, I think all of us agree that that's done much more damage than good. the The interesting thing is, you know, based on what you're saying, Ibu, is being the best version of yourself, being open, being kind. Oftentimes, where you do see a type of synergy. And like openness and, and, and kind of, uh, if you will, partnership with evangelical Christian communities and traditional Jewish communities is over, wait for it, homophobia. Yeah, or, of course. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? So it's, I'm, and, and, and so this is the, the question I want to ask you. It, it might be too hot. I don't think so. I don't think so. But you know this and I know this, that they say, you know what? I disagree with them on all these things, but they're against the gays and gay sex and transgenders and gay marriage. Alhamdulillah. At least the evangelical Christians are doing that. Or, you know what? They're against this feminism. It's too much. And then what happens instead is in furtherance of what people say as their religious values, right? Because it's important to people. Marriage is important to people. Sex and sexuality is important to people of faith, right? They then team up. We then animate our worst aspects of ourselves, our faith traditions, to end up beating up a marginalized community. So where is the balance here, especially from an interfaith model, where you can hold true to say your religious values and say, you know, this is halal, this is haram, this is what I believe, but I'm going to exercise that spiritual and moral value in my tradition that still reaches out to these communities, if that makes sense. It totally does. And and, watch, I'm going to keep on saying this. It happens all the time. It's right in front of our face. For whatever reason, we choose not to tell the story. Right. So here is one of the most inspiring places that it's happened. Ramina Shashibi, mid late 1990s. Right. He's coming up. He is inspired by by black narratives and by hip hop music to reconnect with his Muslim identity. Right. Kind of a standard, interesting, kind of a standard late 90s early 20-something story, except Rami is a very special person. And he actually decides he is going to build an institution out of this ethic. Mm. And he thinks to himself, why is it that Christians have built these things called community development corporations that house senior citizens and have free healthcare clinics and uh, put together food baskets for folks? We Muslims have the exact same ethic in our tradition, 
why don't we have these institutions? Well, I'm going to build one, and I'm going to watch how Pentecostal churches in Chicago have done it first and build my model off of that. That's what I think of when I think of Muslim-Christian cooperation, right? I don't think principally of doctrinal disputes. Of course, there's going to be doctrinal disputes, right? Diversity is not just the differences you like. That, By the way, that's like my best line in 10 years, right? <laughs> Diversity is not just the differences you like. Don't expect to agree on everything, number one. Number two, diversity is not just the flashpoint disagreements, right? Diversity is also the different ways that identity communities express their shared values and ways that we can learn from each other. So Iman's model looks different than the Pentecostal churches down the street. But it has learned from that model. And by the way, Iman's strategic plan was first facilitated by the Jewish Council on Urban Affairs in Chicago. What's the point that I'm making? The point that I'm making is that the genius of American society is in our civil society. It's in the ways that diverse, principally identity communities, racial, ethnic, gender, sexuality, and at the center of it, religion, mm. have built institutions out of their own inspiration, Muslim, Jewish, Catholic, evangelical, et cetera, that almost always, unless they are internal to the community, almost always serve everybody. So here's one of my favorite examples. The largest disaster relief trained volunteer corps in the United States is not actually the Red Cross, it's the Southern Baptists. Mm. And watch, if a hurricane or a tornado ravaged your house, they would show up at the front door, they would not care a whit whether you were atheist or evangelical or Muslim or Jewish. They would give you a warm place to sleep and a hot meal to eat. They would do it out of their faith commitment in service of the public. And we Muslims should learn from that. We are learning from that, and that's what interfaith cooperation is about. Interfaith cooperation is not about the Muslims and the evangelicals against gays. It's not about the areas in which we are going to have reasonable uh, disagreements in which we should just recognize those disagreements and principally bracket them. It's about the places where we cooperate, inspired by our, our different identities, to work together for the benefit of the civic whole. You know, I, forgive I, me I, for being relentlessly optimistic. No, it's fine. It's it's good to know. I, you have to be optimistic, and I have to call out the fault lines, right? And that's how we have the the type of balanced conversation. Because I agree with you. I think it's something beautiful that you when people knock religion. And they often do, as you and I know this. Uh, and when you when you say, you know people say all oh, religions are root of all evils, the example I give is yeah, look at look look at the Red Cross, look at uh, Islamic Relief. Yeah, you might knock us, but when people need shelter, we'll we'll be there. Right, we'll help people exactly. out. Uh, right. We might disagree with you, but we're going to be the ones who are helping the orphans because our faith commands us. And there, there is there is some beauty uh, there that unfortunately has been clouded by some of this ugliness where some people say it's just so anti-woman, so anti-gay, so anti-black. Uh, that oppression is also felt by many Americans who see religion as a sword, not as a shield of protection, right? And so we have to live out the best version of ourselves. But when you and Josh do this, the reality also is, and we have to be honest about this because you're also a smiley, within our own communities, when you go out to the synagogues and when you go out and, and meet the Baptists and the evangelicals, they say, Ibu is just one of those lefty, liberal, non-traditional Muslims trying to placate the man. 
And there's a version of this, I'm sure also, I'm sure in the evangelical community, right? That, oh, look at them. They're just like the rhinos and, you know, the old models. And they're just, you know, they're appeasement. They're, they're engaging in appeasement politics. And so internally within your community, Ibu, how do you still tell this story, even though there is that cynicism and pushback? When you go out there as an Ismaili being the face of interfaith and being the face of this, the best traditions of our Islamic religion and reaching out to people, your own community dismisses you. That must hurt. So it doesn't hurt in part because I don't, I mean, I'm not blind to it, mm. but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not representing the Muslim community. I have built an organization called IFYC, which is now the largest interfaith organization in North America, probably the Western Hemisphere. We have a staff of 50. We have a budget of $10 million. We believe in a vision we call Interfaith America, which is a vision of a nation where people of a variety of different backgrounds have their faiths respected, they relate well to each other, and they cooperate to contribute to the common good. So the model is respect, relate, cooperate. If you want to do a bumper sticker version of it, I spread the gospel as far as and wide as I can, right? So I'm invited to speak at in Muslim spaces and I'm honored by that. What you know, ISNA, the Al Hebri Foundation, I'm invited to speak in evangelical spaces and Jewish spaces and civic spaces. And I never say that I'm representing anything other than myself and the mm-hmm. organization I founded. I'm inspired by the Muslim tradition. I I come out of the Ismaili variant of that. And my hope is that the vision that's put forward, frankly, is recognizable by lots of different people. Prince, I use Muslim language, and so it's gratifying to me. I use Muslim language because I'm a Muslim, mm. right? And so I have a, a proximity and love for the Quran and the Hadith and the Sunnah, and of course, the, the works within the Ismaili community as well. And that is the language that I use to express a vision of pluralism. So, you know, you've heard me talk about uh, Atar's The Conference of the Birds as kind of an early medieval expression of pluralism. And then the the Quranic surahs that we all quote, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's gratifying to me when Muslims resonate with that. And when they don't, I don't know, I, I shrug and continue to try to put forward a, bo- a positive vision. You're 46 now, so you probably have the scabs. You have the scabs and the the tough skin. I think. I think actually, an interesting difference between you and me on this watch is, is I and and this is probably citing a weakness of my own, right? And as I've expressed to you, a, a, an admiration for your courage on this, I stay away from divisive topics and controversy. Right? I stay. I just do. And part of this is that my focus has long been American civil society. Mm. And part of my definition of what the civic is, if I can just be geeky for a second. Geek out. The the civic is a space on which most of us agree. Most of us agree that schools are a good thing. Athletic leagues are a good thing. Hospitals are a good thing, right? And that is why there can be people of diverse identities and divergent ideologies who gather in those spaces who tend to cooperate because there's an agreement that it's a good thing to have an athletic league. It's a good thing to have a gardening club. It's a good thing to have a school. And the activity guides our interaction. But the the cultural and political space often is where the divisions come out, right? That's right. Yeah. And, and a big part of what I think 
my project is and the project of IFYC is, and frankly, the project of religion is, okay, it's in expanding the role of the civic. Mm. So I don't want to be, if I was a band, I, I wouldn't be the Sex Pistols, I'd be you too, right? It, it, how do you write music, frankly, with the progressive, inclusive message that lots and lots and lots of people love and do it in a way that doesn't water things down, right? But the music is beautiful and complex, but it is meant to be accessible. It is meant to get lots of people saying, boy, I love that, right? I, I, am, I don't run away from controversy, but I run towards areas in which people are more likely to cooperate. Mm -hmm. I think because that's the goal, a... the goal for so, the goal of social, the, the the model of social change is let's figure out what's going well and spread that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's compelling, <clears throat> in part because of a conversation some of us had um, with Faith Engel a couple of days ago uh, with a journalist from Poland who was describing how increasingly hollowed out is her society becoming, mm. and so is so is Hungary, and so is some other places, and. Um, we often think about pluralism as applying to religion, to confessional diversity, to religious diversity, but it also applies to institutions. I remember a mentor talking about that at some length, that hospitals and schools and, 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 and charitable associations of various kinds and, and congregations and the like uh, are also part of pluralism, institutional. Is that a piece of it's, what you're building? It's definitional. And th this, this is the whole, th this is, this is, you know, the, the entirety of the IFYC scripture right there, okay, which is the manner in which diverse religious communities cooperate in civil society, in disaster relief, in athletic leagues, in, in academia, uh, in healthcare. It's, that is the American genius. And that is the definition of pluralism. And because it happens so frequently at, we just take it as a given when actually it is a remarkable achievement. So let me let me t let me let me give you this example. So this was front page New York Times three, four, five years ago, right? It, it, the, the article begins this way: When there is a fire on the Catholic side of town in the city of Mostar, the Muslim fire department does not respond. Just think about that line for a second, right? We don't have Muslim fire departments in the United States, right? In fact, we have universities founded by religious communities who almost all of them welcome people from different faiths. That is such a profound achievement, right, that, that we that we don't think of religious identity, that our, our civil society is formed by identity communities building civic institutions that serve everybody and that are reasonably accommodating of religious difference. So when you said you didn't eat pork at your Jesuit Catholic school, they made sure you had something else to eat, right? Well, there were options. There was a there diversity were, uh, of options you could eat what you want. So tuna sandwich. Right. I've right. had enough tuna sandwiches for 16 lifetimes. So <laughs> so Methodist Hospital in Dallas, when somebody, when a patient says that she's halal, they have food options. In other words, a hospital founded by a particular religious identity 
is proactively accommodating people from multiple religious identities and, and nurturing cooperation between them, right? The point that I'm making is that's the beating heart of American pluralism. It's built by diverse religious communities. It takes place in civil society. I would like that model to spread itself into culture and politics. And it's a very Obama vision, right? Like, like this is what, you know, Obama, Obama's like, why can't Congress find ways to cooperate the way that people in Little Leagues do? Mm. It's about expansion. I think there's a recurring theme here about stretching and expanding America to accommodate all of us. It's the way it's always been, at least on the ground level, in our communities, in our little leagues, in our schools, the way we treat each other. Oftentimes, we're very civil. We find some common ground despite our differences in politics and culture. And I would also add that religion, in some form, plays a very important part in the lives of many Americans, you know, and, and I think the way we, we're talking about culture and politics, and I think, um, you know, Josh here, everyone, everyone there would agree with me on this, the way we talk about religion in this country, it's always fascinating to me, you could disagree with me on this, Ibu, is like, if why do we fail so miserably at understanding and talking about religion in the United States of America when religion plays such an important part in the lives of millions of people? I don't know. I, 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 so, so, so my poetic metaphor for this is it's like William Carlos Williams' red wheelbarrow. So much depends on it, and you only pay attention to it when you really need it, right? So, so here's the here's the mental exercise I invite people to do now when I'm I'm doing a talk. I say, imagine if all the faith based institutions within three square miles of where you're sitting disappeared overnight. Mm. Let's do let's do a walk around and see what would be gone. So. You know, we're sitting here in the center of D.C. Georgetown would be gone. How many hospitals would be gone, right? How many social services? So let's, you know, let's assume a bunch of mosques, synagogues, and churches would be gone. But how many social service agencies would be gone, right? How many places that feed people would be gone, right? How many schools would be gone? All of these places that make up our civil society would just evaporate, right? In Chicago, when I do this, on Michigan Avenue— Northwestern Hospital would be gone. It was founded by Methodists. Right. Loyola Law School would be gone. It was founded by Jesuits. The, the downtown Islamic Center would be gone. They run a turkey drive. You know, The synagogue uh, a couple miles north would be gone. They make sure that the kids at the local elementary school have food in their backpacks so that they can eat over the weekend. Mm. Right? That's the role that religion plays in our society. It's the, the Southern Baptists who train disaster relief volunteers. I don't agree with Southern Baptist doctrine. I don't agree with Southern Baptist politics. They train 100,000 disaster relief volunteers. I have a lot of respect for that. Mm -hmm. And I am going to choose to relate to Southern Baptists based on the parts of their expression that I respect. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the choice that I'm going to make, right? That doesn't mean I'm not going to engage in other parts of the conversation where I think it can be fruitful you know, the, uh, uh, fruitful is not going to be, is Jesus a prophet of God or is he Lord and Savior? That's a doctrinal dispute. It's been going on for 1,400 years. We're not going to solve it. Probably going to stay away from that. But there's other things that I think we can have a fruitful dialogue uh, about. But I'm going to choose my instinctive, my, I'm going to choose the first engagement on the area of cooperation and on the area of where I admire the other person. 
So, Ibo, back to what you were describing earlier about building and bonding, you know, bridging capital, uh, not just um, saying things with edge that get a reaction as is so rewarded on Twitter and sometimes even in our contemporary politics. You know, what's the magic ingredient for that? We were part of a group that was talking about this idea of creative minorities. And being part of a creative minority means that you you have instinct, uh, you have, excuse me, being part of a creative minority means you have reason to want to be a part of the broader whole, reason to play music like you too, not, not with such edge. Um, and in the black community, for example, if you were to look back at, at major heroes in the country for the last four decades, you've got uh, you know, Muhammad Ali, Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, and Barack Obama. Uh, how, how is it that we ought, as more groups are becoming part of uh, creative minorities, or at least demographic minorities, um, to appeal to all or to appeal more broadly? So maybe I'll answer this question. I'll begin with kind of our, our lead image for, for a diverse democracy, right? In the early 20th century, the lead image was melting pot. So, so minorities were given the opportunity to melt away their ethnicity and religion to be accepted as Americans, which for back then, might have been a step forward, right? Uh, it, it, the, the, this is the Horace Kalin idea. That's not a good model for now. The better model is potluck nation, right? And what's a potluck? A potluck is a space that welcomes and proactively invites the best of people's distinctive contributions. That ought to be the, the guiding image of our nation. We are a potluck nation, not a melting pot. Okay, so how do you have a potluck work? You have to have respect for diverse identities and contributions. You have to have positive relationships with people. You have to agree tacitly to cooperate on something. People arrange their dishes. They clean up the space. They make sure not to make a mess. They, you know, are polite when people say, is that vegan? Does that have pork, right? Like there's, there's a lot that goes into making a potluck work well. And my favorite part about this is no governor, no general, no, no president commands people to potluck. It's, it's a, it is the ultimate beautiful civic form. Okay, why is racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, homophobia, why are they such terrible things? Well, number one, they're violations of individual dignity, but number two, they're barriers to contributions. Your potluck is less delicious. Right? It has excluded a whole set of people. It's excluded a whole set of contributions. That's how we should think about diversity in the nation, right? The guiding metaphor and model, potluck, the way that that works, respect, relate, cooperate. The barriers to that are any form of exclusion or violation of dignity. It's really not that hard. It's really not that hard. And, and what it is, is it's a positive, proactive vision. I appreciate critical voices, but they can't be in charge. The people who have to be in charge are the people with a positive, proactive vision who can actually make it happen. Let me ask one more question, uh, maybe an exit question from me before turning things back over to Wash uh, about that. Because one thing I'm uh, increasingly observing in a number of Christian colleges and in a number of churches where lots of potlucks take place is that often you have more women than men. Mm. 
Um, and I'm curious to ask a question, a question actually about gender. Um, you know, do you guys find in the work of, of training and equipping people to do interfaith work that you often are training more women than men? And what is there about that dynamic uh, that's worth considering in this larger conversation, again, about bonding and bridging? How is it that interfaith work might increasingly appeal to men? Hmm. I'm always cautious about anything that strikes me as essentialistic or deterministic or generic, right? So I don't know if there's anything essential to women or women's nature that draws them towards interfaith stuff, you know, I, I, demographic realities are, are demographic realities. They ought to be pointed out. They ought to be observed. And we ought to ask the question, why is this the case it is? Knowing that it could change in 10 years, right? One thing for sure is that there are, there are, there are ceilings and barriers to women's leadership in a range of religious communities. That's not the case in, in civic spaces for the most part, right? And so, you know, I, I don't, I think that it makes sense that there that women have been in leadership at IFYC for a very long time, and and many of them, many of these people are religiously oriented women who who might not have been able to have the same leadership position in in their particular faith community. Uh, um, but yeah, I will let other people, you know, opine about whether there's something essential to to you know, women versus men. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm always very cautious sure. about that. You know, uh, I, I know you have to catch a plane and head back home. We appreciate your time, but I have you for a few more minutes, so I'm going to use it. Uh, I really do like the potluck analogy. It's the one that I've used as well. Um, uh, I don't want to melt into anything. I like my form and human body. So I think a tossed salad or a potluck is excellent where, you know, I can bring my mom's biryani and someone else can bring meatloaf and another person can bring an enchilada. But the reality is, you know, and speaking about the particularity of being Muslim in this moment in this country, and, and in fact, in many countries around the world, India, China, Sri Lanka, we bring the really delicious dishes, we show up, we bring the banners, we're outside the door, we're knocking, we have a smile on our face and no one wants to eat with us. And we are students of history, and we know that other religious communities have gone through this in America, Irish Catholics, Eastern European Jews. Um, but they were able to, in some extent, to blend into whiteness, what we call the mainstream. And as you know, Ibo, the intersection of religion and race is we are not a white majority religious community in America. We're brown, we're black, and we're white. And so how about the rest of us, the Muslims who want to participate in this potluck, increasingly more and more politicians are saying, we do not want to invite you. What do we do? Yeah, I just think you're wrong. Just straight up. Like, like I'm you know, happy to happy to find places of overlap where I can. I just think you're wrong on this. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for this. You know, I mean, there was a Muslim no, ban. I'm not making that up. No, you're not making that up. And if you want to look at the education and income levels of of immigrant Muslims, they're way higher than the median, Correct. right? That is not the case with African-American Muslims, which is a dynamic more closely related to racism than Islamophobia. Right. I'm not saying Islamophobia doesn't exist. I mean, I've written five books where Islamophobia is a prominent theme, right? I, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, right? I am saying that... I don't think the specific example of the Muslims show up with biryani and no one wants to eat with us is 
accurate. Farhan Latif just told me at the Al Hebri Foundation that one of his concerns is that in interfaith endeavors all across the country, it's the Muslim community that is that is least represented and not for lack of trying. Especially with Jewish spaces, right? correct? In in a range of spaces. So so I am not interested in downplaying Islamophobia, and you and I have have both raised the alarm on this. I'm talking about a national so, so, level, right? Just the the, the, the right. type of rhetoric and conversation that growing right. up I never heard in the 80s and 90s. Like, I, I totally agree with that. I think so. Can is there a way for us to acknowledge the ugliness of Islamophobia, and at the same time, also point out the the remarkable achievements of American Muslims, right? It, it, we are we punch way above our demographic weight in in education, in medicine, in uh, in income level, and if that is also a fact, then white supremacy, you know, needs to like put itself on steroids because it's not stopping us. It's not stopping us, right? Um, and I think. I am curious, the terms white and people of color are invoked so frequently that you would think that like they were as obvious as like, you know, that they were handed down to Moses in the Ten Commandments. I think it was the 11th. It could have been the, (laughs) right? He scrubbed it. But, you know, it's, what, what percentage of the world would qualify as people of color? Gosh, the vast majority, right? Maybe, maybe seventy percent or something. Eight, yeah. 90 percent. Yeah. Okay, so let's say eighty percent of the world mm. would qualify as people of color. What a stupid category that would contain eighty percent of the world and think of that as as a coherent. That's six billion people. What can you reasonably say about six billion people? By the way, 50, 60 years ago, uh, a guy named Michael Novak wrote a book called The Unmeltable Ethnics. Poles, Italians, Jews, Slavs, right? In which he said, these people will never be white. Well, 50 years later, 60 years later, we think of them as just being white. My friend Paul Rauschenbusch just said in 1848, there was a war of the races in which every combatant on every side, today we would just call white. In 20 years, do we not think that a whole set of people who currently we understand as North Indian or Palestinian or Chilean or Costa Rican would mostly be thought of as white? I mean, I think about my wife, Shanaz, and I, you know, like the our kids— 30 closest friends. 20 of those 30 families are in mixed marriages, Mm. right? So the point that I'm making is racism is a corrosive, deforming, ugly, poisonous, powerful force. Islamophobia is a corrosive, deforming, ugly, poisonous force. These things exist. They should not be ignored. We should talk about them as violations of dignity and barriers to contribution. I don't think basing a set of analytic categories around them, like oppressor and oppressed, like white and people of color, 
is especially useful because the definition of white has changed so dramatically in just a few decades, suggesting it will again. The definition of people of color currently incorporates 80 to 85% of the world. Half of those countries have gone to war with each other. India and Pakistan, Pakistan and Bangladesh, China and Japan, China and India, should we go on, right? Like, like I mean, what use does it serve to assume that all of these people have something powerful in common, right? So I, I'm just, you know, I, I would much rather see myself I mean, June Jordan says in a poetic way, right? I'm a stranger learning how to worship the strangers around me. It's very roomy-like. Uh, uh, but in in kind of an American identity and diversity way, I'm an American Ismaili Muslim of Indian descent who seeks to bring my dish to the great potluck of American civil society, it is looking forward to enjoying other people's dishes, will stay away from the pork and the alcohol, will mix and match otherwise, will try to contribute to this wonderful thing called a healthy, religiously diverse democracy in America, will do my best not to stereotype people based on their physical or otherwise observable attributes, uh, will recognize the importance of group identities and communities, will marvel at the genius of American civil society, and will otherwise try to be a pretty good dad, husband, Muslim, etc. Uh, and then some. Uh, as you're heading out to the door, I'm going to do a plot twist with my final question. What is giving you hope today? You know what's giving me hope? Uh, thank, that's a great question. I am meeting more and more people who I, I would say I'm a progressive with moderate instincts or a progressive who seeks to attain my civic and other goals through moderate means. And I'm meeting more and more progressives, moderates, and conservatives who, who, are, who are in this, with the same kind of temperament, who resonate with the vision of a potluck nation, who think of themselves more as builders than critics, who don't want a more ferocious revolution, who, who are invested in building a more beautiful social order, um, who you know, are down with the kind of respect, relate, and cooperate model of diversity, who are kind of like, you know, giving the side eye to everybody being either an oppressor or the oppressed. And I'm like, I, I hope that we are at the at the cusp of a new era in which cooperation becomes the norm. And uh, I want to be a part of that. Amen. Thank you, Ibu, for your time. Thanks for, uh, I know you're exhausted and you're about to rush to DCA and you stepped in for this conversation. Uh, and thank you as always, Josh, for inviting me to participate. Appreciate it. Waj, salam alaikum and khud office to you. I appreciate you, Tuan. You're an American treasure and, and we, I'm proud you come from the Muslim community. Thank you, man. I'll Venmo you your money right now. I appreciate <laughs> it. Salam alaikum. Take care, guys. Faith Angle exists to connect leading journalists, including from the coastal elite, with leading scholars and practitioners, including from the heartland. Thanks for listening.